A couple of years ago, Michael and Jacob, two friends from London, were both thinking about their consumption and sustainability as a whole. Michael, a professional footballer at the time, realised he had no options when it came to sustainable sportswear. Overconsumption and underuse was all too common. Hilo was born, a sportswear brand fighting for the planet by changing mindsets. They started with a running shoe made with seven natural materials, and the shoe can be recycled at the end of its life. As a company, they've offset their carbon to beyond zero, making them carbon negative. You can find out more about Hilo and support their mission at hiloathletics.com. That's H-Y-L-O. We support the Hilo movement. My name's David Savage and I have an as yet undiagnosed liver condition. I also happen to really like running very long distances. As a consequence, I wanted to find other people who had health conditions but also loved sport. And the Chronically Fit Show is what happened. Has fallen away And in those times A shadowy hills to climb Hold out your hand to mine the second season opens with Bruce Campbell, who is a South African and a professional athlete who not only had GBS as a child, but also in his early 20s suffered from Pompeii disease. Uh, Bruce went from leading world championship triathlon races to literally not being able to move, lay in a puddle by the side of the road. His medicine costs £18,000 a month. This is someone who's had to face huge adversity to carry on his love of sport, uh, cycles ridiculous amounts uh, and does all of that despite needing to work probably eight times harder than anyone else just to stop himself being in crippling pain. Please stay tuned. After the interview, myself and Marla will have a little bit of, of reflection on this particular interview and link it back to some of the ones that we've had before. And if this is the first episode of the Chronically Fit show that you're discovering, there are six episodes in season one, so go back and have a listen to them afterwards too. Today, I'm joined by Bruce Campbell. Uh, Bruce, you're down in South Africa, so um, good morning, but also very envious because I imagine it's warm and sunny and it's really not here in London. <laughs> I think it's before 10 o'clock and it's almost 30 degrees outside. It's quite. Uh, actually, I don't, I don't cope so well in heat, so I'm less jealous than I was. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Brit, anything over about 23 degrees and I, I'm, oh no, no, too much. Uh, whereabouts in South Africa are you? I'm in Port Elizabeth, so... Um... I think everyone knows Cape Town, about eight hour drive down from Cape Town. Yeah, beautiful. Well, look, thank you for making some time to chat to us today. Um, and we've got you on the show because, well, not only are you uh, a kind of a, an elite sport standard, and we will get to that, but um, you have faced a couple of, of real health challenges along the way. Um, and it started at, at, at an early age, right? Um, your first battle with health started when you were just six years old. Yes, yeah. I, I, um, I was on a holiday with my folks uh, and my, my three brothers, and uh, I just fell, you know, fell horribly ill. And they told me, um, they told me to get up out of bed one one day and go for a walk. It'll be good for me. And not even a hundred meters down the road, I kind of collapsed and. Um, I was quickly jetted from East London to Cape Town and uh, where I was diagnosed with uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which kind of attacks your muscles and your nerves. And, um, and yeah, it rendered me completely paralyzed and I had to have an emergency tracheotomy where they attached me to a ventilator that breathed for me. 
Look, in the first series, we had we had Holly um, with Gillian Barre, and and she she was afflicted by that in her mid twenties, and I suppose at that point, look, being an adult and dealing and understanding with that is is hard enough. Being six years old, do you think, in some respects? I mean, it's difficult for you to have comprehend exactly what was going on right at that age. But at the same time, uh, it must have been absolutely terrifying. I'm trying to work out whether whether being six years old in a way was an advantage in the kids very, are very resilient and bounce back. You, you know, I think being that young, I probably didn't realize the severity of it. And uh, mm. so I think kind of you don't really know what's happening and what's going on and being paralyzed, you know, uh, that was kind of a journey of um, I was slowly treated. And back then, they didn't quite know how to treat it. You know, they would just kind of feed you steroids and hope that you your muscles wouldn't deteriorate to a point. I mean, I got super anorexic, had to be fed through a nose, uh, a pipe that went through my nose into my stomach. Um, and then sl- slowly but surely, they started to put me in spl- uh, hanging splints above my bed just to try and get a bit of movement. Um, it was, I think, the the m- most challenging part was when I started getting feeling back, but I couldn't move or talk yet. And you know, if a mosquito bit me, I couldn't tell anyone to scratch me or scratch an itch. Um, and uh, yeah, but I, I managed to come out of hospital. I think after just over three months, but I was still in a wheelchair. And then uh, and then they mm-hmm. told told my parents, you know, I'd never be able to walk again. Do you think it was, and this, I don't know whether this is a sensible question or not, but do you think it was tougher on your parents? I, most certainly, most certainly. I think my parents had to kind of uproot their life from uh, from where they were living and, and uh, one of them had to take shifts and coming down for a couple of weeks at a time to stay with me in hospital and uh, visit me every single day and try and encourage me to, to get better. And um, even, even through all the prognosis and saying that I would never be able to walk again they never once faltered and um, they believed in me and they believed and they prayed so much and they knew that I would get better at some point so as soon as I was out of hospital they, my dad immediately started putting me into the pool you know because it's low weight bearing and he started mm-hmm. getting more movement in my body um, my youngest brother was just born so I started to learn how to crawl again with him and, uh, and then very slowly started to learn how to walk again and uh, yeah the rest is the history uh, once I could walk they got me a bicycle and uh, and sent me down the hill <laughs> but, I mean we've had a number of people on this show who loved sport then later in life they they ran into a chronic health issue and it's it's not stopped them obviously your love of sport developed after you'd had um, Guillain Barr syndrome Yes, and I almost think, as a love for the ability to move, given what you'd been through, right? Most certainly, I think um, you know, just having the ability of moving and doing sport and using your body to swim and run and hike and go on adventures with your friends—that was, um, you know, that it just inspired me to just realize how lucky we are and how privileged we are to have the use of our bodies. And uh, so, as soon as I was better and throughout my school school uh, career if you may I was uh, you know I did every single sport I was offered I went on hikes adventures 
adventure racing, uh, I just started life-saving, surfing, uh, you name it, uh, triathlon. I started from a young age and my love for sport has just kept on growing um, as, I, as I progressed. Hey, you you must have a real love for sport to go surfing in South Africa, right? You know, the sharks <laughs> that you've got off your coat. No, <laughs> um, I've always thought slightly nuts. No, um, look, joking aside, you, you kind of you you took that love, and you did pour it particularly into triathlon, right? Yes, and after after school, I went to Australia for a year and swam, try to try to follow like a professional swimming career, and that was mm-hmm. super hard. Uh, you realize how small South Africa is when you go to a bigger country and you realize the standard of of sport is so much greater, you know, over in the UK and Australia. Um, whereas, you know, we maybe have top 100 athletes. They have like, you know, 2,000 top, top athletes. So um, when I came back and I was studying, I was studying sports science, I um, threw myself into triathlon, mainly focusing on off-road triathlon. So when you you swim in like a dam or, or the sea and then you um, mountain bike and trail run. That that to me just was like the dream, you know. Uh, I love mountain biking, I love trail running and I love swimming. So putting them all together was was amazing and I, I try to pursue that as a, as a professional career. But, you know, every time I got to a big race where um, I would be in amazing form and um, I would sometimes even be leading the race, um, I was experiencing some kind of debilitating pain in my body that would render me sometimes unable to walk or continue in the race. I can't help but feel that you'd had one, when we'll get onto what that turned out to be, but you, you had one chronic condition at an early age. How old were you when, when you started to suffer these debilitating pains? I was about, um, I was about 23 23 yeah but about 22 23 I started noticing started noticing these pains and um, they were quite frightening I mean to go from being super fit and and uh, you know being in such great shape and then unable to walk for a couple of hours or a day or two it was it was, the, the first thing the first bit of trauma that comes back to my mind was thinking that I was perhaps getting the virus again from when I was younger I was so terrified that I was going to be paralyzed again and this is the thing from a mentality point of view you'd already been up that mountain once you'd already had that huge fight at an early age discovered your love of sport and then it gets taken away from you again i mean from a mentality point of view that must have been really hard to deal with yeah you know i think um i carried on you know you go to i mean you go to specialists and they um, that no doctors and specialists were ever looking at me as an individual. You know, they were looking at my my minor symptoms, and generally, they all, most of them, were saying, "Oh, you're training too hard. You're training too much. You, you you're doing things wrong." And and uh, having studied sports science, I know, and I had a, a really good coach at the time. I know that I wasn't overdoing things. So this was something else. But nobody would ever give me the time of day to um, look at me as an individual and say, "Why is this fit, healthy person?" getting these debilitating pains and uh, um, yeah, that, that led me further on down the line where I was just deteriorating, you know, I was getting weaker and weaker and when I say weaker, I'm not just talking about my, my limbs or my, you know, my, I was starting to struggle with my breathing because your lungs are also a muscle, those muscles were getting weaker, your heart muscle starts getting weaker. 
and, and I think it's worth that we we kind of explain the the level that you were at because before we hit record, you were mentioning that, that you know you, you literally were leading the world championships in Germany, uh, yeah. and and went from leading a leading a race at that elite level to being effectively in a puddle and, and unable to unable to move. Yeah, no, it, it really really hit me hard. I mean, you can you, you can't imagine. You know, being in the best form and and, and 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 racing at that sort of level, and um, and then to just be debilitated and unable to continue from that sort of level of fitness and and, and strength, um, it was extremely frightening, and uh, it led me to just yeah break down almost. I almost hit rock bottom at a stage, and uh, you don't you don't quite know where to go. So the doctors. At the time, and look, it's difficult for medical professionals, right? Because the, the, I sometimes, obviously, Marla is a co-host on this show, and, and I certainly don't want to um, to to criticise the medical profession because they they do amazing stuff, especially at the moment around the world. Uh, but but they they are looking at extreme examples of very rare diseases uh, and conditions, and people in, you know, you you, you were in r- ridiculously good shape. Um, to then have this happen to you. So it must be challenging for them. But they told you that you would never be able to get strong again, to get in good form and fitness again. And yet here we are. uh, And last year, according to Strava, um, you cycled about 18,000 kilometers. Correct, correct. Yeah, I know. You know, it took me 10 years to finally um, get a diagnosis for Pompeii disease. And uh, which is a, a rare, rare genetic disease. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole story of how I was diagnosed, I was actually teaching a, a kid and and, uh, and her dad admitted me into hospital. And he was the one who took me a little bit more seriously. I don't know if it's because we had a little bit more of a personal relationship um, because I taught his daughter and um, and he managed to diagnose me. But at the time, there was just you know, not enough information about these rare diseases. So he said, you know, there is treatment available, but it's extremely expensive and you could get an allergic reaction to it and die. And uh, so the treatment option was out the window already. He pretty much just told me to, you know, carry on, just take it easy, carry on living my life. And, and at that stage, I was slowly deteriorating. So I was pretty much faced with the, am I just going to deteriorate until I, until I, can't function anymore um you know that that was a frightening i I thought my days were numbered Uh, and look just very quickly because because pompeii disease until until i started talking to you pompeii disease wasn't something i was familiar with so it would just be good to to understand exactly how that does affect first of all so so it's a glycogen storage disease um basically your body is missing the enzyme that breaks down glycogen and glycogen pretty much fuels your whole body so um, what happens when your body can't find glycogen and starts to attack your nerves and your and your muscles and starts to break down your muscles to use as fuel, which causes huge amounts of pain in your body. Um, it causes your muscles to get weaker, obviously, so, um, and namely your 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 heart muscles and your and your lung lung function, um, you know, starts to get weaker, which affects the rest of your body. You know, they, your heart and lungs kind of regulate everything, and through all the muscle breakdown, then your liver is taking so much strain because it has to deal with all these incredible um, enzyme release 
I mean, they use an example called um, an enzyme called creatine kinase, which shows how much muscle damage is caused in your body. And uh, that level should never really go above 308. Um, mine, when I wake up every day, is sitting at about 500, 550. So it's way over the, the level of... Uh, um, and they say when you do an Ironman or a, a Comrades or a big marathon, that level can go up to like 300, 350, showing that you're in extreme amount of pain. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much above that every day at rest. Look, you mentioned before that you were a sports scientist and you knew at, at one point that you weren't overexerting yourself. When you're faced with that and the way that your body fuels itself is malfunctioning, how do you justify to yourself? And I'm, obviously it's amazing that you do, but how do you justify to yourself? No, no, I am going to continue. I am going to push myself because you know, as you said, the, the 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 advice you got was rest. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, and that's probably the worst thing I wanted to hear, you know. <laughs> when you love sport as much and you're so used to it, doing it every single day, I just wanted to get out there and carry on exercising. And at times that involved just going to walk inside the swimming pool. But uh, thankfully, having a bit of a sports science background, I, I, uh, I dived into the science of it, you know. So glycogen is the problem. How do I eliminate my body using glycogen as a fuel? And thankfully, we all have a, a, a readily available fat source. So I had to try and shift my body's systems to burning fat as a, as a main fuel source rather than glycogen. And uh, that that does it's a it's a lot harder than one thinks. I mean, you had to go on long six to eight hour cycles um, where I would go at very low intensity and eat nothing and just drink water and you'd pretty much take yourself into what uh, I think most athletes would call bonking, you know, when your, your sugar levels hit rock bottom and you get all dizzy and I'd pretty much sit on the side of the road until my dizziness was gone and then get up and <laughs> get up and continue. And I would just have to continually do that for a couple of months uh, until I just tuned my body into becoming a fat burning machine. Hey, look, a lot of people would love to be there. It sounds like quite an extreme way to, to do it. So, yeah, look, I mean, it, it demonstrates just how important sport was to you, kind of not not just from the physical benefits, but mentally and why. And and, and, and obviously, you know, that, that goes back to, to that experience from being six and seven years old and not wanting to lose that. Um, you mentioned uh, before we hit record that cycling is the thing for you now. Uh, running isn't really so much of an option. But um, hey, look, what, what, I love trail running. But from your perspective, what is it about about being in slight, you know, not not a road race or not not just being on a standard course that you love so much? I just think I love the adventure of it. You know, um, the, my, my mountain bike has taken me to places that I never thought I would ever go before. And uh, some of the races around South Africa have been absolutely incredible. I mean, there's one race, it's probably probably one of the toughest races I've done. It's called the Munga. And it's, it's, it's dubbed as the world's toughest race. Uh, it's 1,100 kilometers uh, nonstop. So you cycle from the top of Bloemfontein to Cape Town. And you go day and night through 45 plus degree heat. Um, and, uh, you know, many people and doctors told me I definitely should not do that. And, um, and you know, that's one of the things that has driven me to, to do these kind of weird and wonderful tough races, um, mm. you know, just to show that 
I don't have to listen to the sentence I've been given. I can go further with the willpower and breaking mental barriers every day by, by doing things like this. Obviously, it started off at a much smaller scale in the beginning. Yeah, of course. Look, out of interest, what the doctors say to you now? Because obviously he's saying to you, don't do these things. I mean, there might be a temptation to go, all right, look, you're doing them, but you probably shouldn't medically, but fine, it's working for you. Or do they go, no, no, it is, you know, because I suppose in, in some regards, meeting someone like you helps inform and go, oh, maybe there is a different way to look at this. I think doctors these days are actually phoning me to ask me advice about Pompeii disease. And uh, Amazing. The, the, the things that I've done that have benefited me, uh, they might have not thought about, you know, um, uh, especially uh, alongside the treatment. Don't get me wrong, the medication that I get, I receive a drip every two weeks, um, this very expensive medication. I worked it out um, uh, in pounds. The the medication that I receive every, every two weeks costs 18,000, just over 18,000 pounds a month. Wow. Yeah. So it's quite a, quite a huge amount of... Uh, uh, money goes into this medication and but in saying that without this medication i don't know if i would be still still standing or still be here on this earth so it has really changed my life and look i i feel that it's um relevant to ask you about um aspire life fit yes yeah no that's that's my my passion my pride and joy my um uh, a few years ago i left my job as a teacher and i, I took over and now I'm owner, owner and, um, and, and head coach of Aspire Live Fit Coaching Academy where I try and help everyone from triathletes, cyclists, swimmers, paddlers, adventure racers, surfers. Um, yeah, I coach them to be the best that they can be. And uh, young and old, professional, beginner, uh, I, do, I do it all. And, and I do it purely from a passion of just helping people progress in their life and in their own individual journey in sport. In the nicest possible sense, I, I'd hate you to be my coach because if if if, if someone turned around and said I can't do that to you, <laughs> it's like really I think you can. Well, you, you know, having access to all this amazing scientific data, I've, I've managed to work out that it takes me about eight times longer to develop my body than than my friends or than than other people. Yeah. So I like to think that I have to work eight times harder than everyone else to just be able to stay with them, you know, um, just be able to ride with my friends. I have to work harder than them to be able to be at their level. And uh, so when someone's having a really bad day, you can kind of sl slightly gesture that and uh, <laughs> they, they can draw the inspiration or, or hate me for it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, to, to finish just, just quickly, obviously, Getting into the mind of a of a six or seven year old is quite difficult. But if, if, if there is someone out there who gets a diagnosis like Pompeii, and and maybe they're not into sport, maybe it's you know maybe they're later in life and it's it's not something that they've discovered that passion for. Um, what would your advice to them be? Oh, yeah, you know, um, I think in life people are always telling you um, things that you that you can't do. You know. Um, and I try to turn that around to people telling me things I can't do. Maybe I won't, maybe I just don't believe them and show them what I can do. You know, um, I, my dad's always told me this saying of DGU, don't ever give up. Um, uh, no matter how many times you fail, I think, you know, um, 
at the time when I was at my rock bottom, I was contemplating life and how much longer I had to live here on this earth. And, and from that, I realized that, you know, life is not about how many days you actually have to live on this earth, but it's more about what you can fit into those days that allow you to live a remarkable life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I'm, I think that, um, your, your, your outlook is, 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 is truly inspirational. It's wonderful to hear from you. So I really do appreciate you giving up some time. Um, when's your next race? Oh, all races are kind of postponed at the moment, but uh, I do have yep. a, a, a three-day stage race coming up now in the beginning of March, so holding thumbs that it goes ahead. Fingers crossed. Yes. Look, good luck for that, um, and uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate your time, David, and what and all you guys do. Welcoming back for a second series. Hello, Marla. How are you? Hello, David. I'm good. How are you? Yes, good to have someone who knows about medicine on the show. <laughs> I, I I know you keep saying that, but like just because I have a degree and it doesn't mean I know it. Like you know, <laughs> no, no. Just because you have a degree in it means that you do know more than most. I mean, you know more than I do. <laughs> like I think we're. I think. Um, I think. We can't call ourselves experts in anything. This is it. No, I feel like the right, only person okay. who calls themselves an expert is like David Attenborough. Like that's no, it. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of relate this to. So I have grade eight trombone, right? Anyone who has grade eight on an on an instrument knows that actually, when you get to grade eight, you still can't play particularly <laughs> brilliantly, but you can read music and you can yeah. pick it up and play it, right? I kind that's of think true. that I don't want to make your degree sound like grade eight medicine. <laughs> But it's like you know a lot more than I do. I couldn't. I couldn't. I, I couldn't sit down with someone and give them a, a kind of a, 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 a diagnosis, whereas you probably could. Do you know? Okay, yeah. I, I I agree. Okay, grade eight. Grade eight medicine. That's what we are. I there we go. Grade eight medicine. <laughs> but you know what is interesting is is I think especially in season one. I'm finding so much that you learn so much more from patients and case studies and examples than maybe even grade eight, like, you know, the theory of everything and grade eight medicine doesn't give you, right? So I love these <laughs> podcasts. I learned so much from them. I think they're brilliant. <laughs> I never bothered with, I have to be perfectly honest, I never bothered with theory or scales. So uh, <laughs> I routinely failed sight reading. Oh my God. <laughs> never this mind. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> Talking about Bruce, um, Pompeii was not something that I'd heard of. Like, you know, obviously GBS was was something that I had heard of because of Holly in the first series. Um, so when he talked about GBS, I, I immediately was kind of thinking, oh, Christ, okay, well, that's that's bad enough. And then Pompeii on top of that. Um, is, it, is it something that you're – like, I get the impression – from his story about literally just stumbling across um, the, the uh, daughter of, of, a, of a specialist, that it is incredibly rare. Do you know what? So we say this, I think, time and time again, but so much, every single person's body is so unique, right? And so there are so many different diseases that you can have. And we were talking about this offline, right? That like sometimes it's just knowing a specialist or being in the right room at the right time to have someone look. I remember even my, I, I remember someone I know that had um, 
were seeing a, an orthopedic doctor for something and then it happened mm. that they found something else and I think that so much of this is just luck but yeah I mean there's no way that they could teach you at med school every single thing it would just be no. would just be insane yeah I mean that's kind of the argument for automation and AI right but that's a slightly yeah. different topic <laughs> um I I think right Bruce Bruce obviously is incredibly resilient I think the one thing that I I picked up upon and it, it's mentioned fleetingly in the interview is the cost of his medicine it costs him eighteen thousand pounds a month and this isn't these aren't drugs that allow him to continue to cycle in endurance races these are to allow him to function without being in crippling pain and he had to go to court and this isn't mentioned and this is only from talking to him further he had to go to, to court to fight for the right to that medicine I get that it's incredibly expensive, but I just kind of, on an ethical level, there there has to be, if you've got that diagnosis, I, it's, I suppose it comes down to insurance and, and, and universal healthcare and whatever else, but if you've got the ability to stop someone being in crippling pain and they can't live their life, surely they have, they shouldn't be having to go through court to fight for something like that. I see this every day in my work as well, right? Like the patients that we've seen, and I sit on a patient advisory group for for patients that are accessing medicinal cannabis. And even for them, right, it's been legal for a couple of years to be able to have a prescription for cannabis. But the the amount of fight, I think it's about three patients in the UK that have their you know cannabis that is provided on the NHS. Every other one of them has to pay out of pocket. And I, I mean, just hearing... Hearing you say the the extent that Bruce has gone to to get here and you read in the papers almost on a daily basis now, whether it's mm. cannabis or a different drug or something where there's a letter to an MP and it's trying to be escalated. But look, it's a really difficult time right now and patients' voices in this climate especially aren't being heard. The, the, the reviews that, you know, and the normal campaigns that get together to discuss drug fees, those meetings aren't happening anymore because parliament groups aren't convening in the same way as they were before. You know, these there's been a whole year now where things have just been put on pause plus Brexit. And so I think that in the next few months, you know, there's going to be, we're going to be seeing some really difficult repercussions of this because there's going to be a lot of patients that really need help and things just haven't moved forward. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously... Bruce's Bruce's particular situation is kind of the extreme, but I mean, towards the end, the end of last year, the drugs that I was on, it was setting me back somewhere in the region of about fifty pounds a month, which I can afford. That's fine for me, but there will be people out there who right now really can't afford to pay for for, for drugs on a consistent basis and on, on an ongoing basis in perpetuality. You know that that they need to either stay alive or to stay pain free and. It just seems perverse that people don't have access to that and that these these ongoing conditions aren't covered in some way. Yeah, 100%. And when it's I, the thing that really gets me is when it's it's children. That mm. really, I mean, like for every, it's crazy. But when, when it's a child and like, especially with children with epilepsy that don't have their medicinal cannabis covered, for example, that baffles me. You know, kids are going it's a kid it's a child you know they, how would they have paid for it how would they have paid for it and you, 
it just I they were like they don't have a job where do you expect them to get their money from so you either yeah. been lucky enough to be brought into a world where you have a parents that can pay for it or you know you just don't have access it's crazy yeah 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 totally but look despite all that Bruce's outlook is mm-hmm. incredible oh it really is and you you know just just the effort that he went to to explain at the end his his ethos and how you shouldn't ever give up and you really should show what you do I think it it speaks volumes because it's like a fighter story right it's like no matter what just keep going just keep going and it will you know there will be a light kind of thing at the end of the tunnel and I, I think he's he's tremendous he's tremendous to have been able to to really get, you know get fit again inverted commas but just keep going with it I mean, is that pain in the arse that if you kind of go, oh, well, no, I don't know whether I can do that. It's like, oh, right. So, yeah, so Bruce has to push himself eight times harder than anyone else. <laughs> it's like, oh, maybe maybe I can do that then. <laughs> like I said, exactly. he must be so annoying as a trainer. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Uh, in the nicest possible sense. Sorry, Bruce. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to kind of, you know, make it sound like you're not you're not wonderful you are but uh jesus um yeah the fact that that he has to push himself to the extent that he obviously does is just incredible yeah and mentally and physically right he's clearly he he's just and he knows his body really well you can tell from it he really understood what his own limits where he was working and i think that's a that's a type of knowledge that i would love to have about my own body i think it's something that we all could you could benefit from learning right yeah i mean the fact that just simple things like knowing that running wasn't going to be his thing anymore so he switched to cycling and just mm. he's got that love and and obviously sport is something you know this whole this whole series is about people finding that drive to carry on through sport for him it's obviously an incredibly important part of what he does um because of what happened to him when he was a child because of gbs and he's not going to let what's happened to him in his early 20s um, and affect him going forward. And, and he still carries on and, and still pushes himself as hard as he can. Yeah, he's awesome. I like have nothing more to say on that. He's just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Love him. There we go. Right. Uh, thank you for joining us for today's show. Marla, thank you for adding uh, a bit of grade eight medicine knowledge. And uh, <laughs> the series will continue next week with Sabella Davis. And if all the nights close in, there's warmth and hope within. And if all the nights close in, 